0: Welcome to Click Hole Wednesday, a casual hump day hangout that takes less time to edit than my other shit. Hello ladies and dingdongs, welcome back to another Wikipedia rollercoaster, not unlike the election we just had, where we'll start with one thing and, well, end with another. Wow, that is the most thrilling description I've ever come up with. I hope you've all survived the tempestuous roller coaster of an election we just had, and may continue to have, possibly. I apologize for not uploading a video on Saturday. I was caught up in the election hysteria and madness, much like many of us, I suppose, but it's all alright. We can all go back to sleep for four years because Wilbur Beast has been made mayor of Rabbit Hash, Kentucky, and that's all that really matters. Stay tuned for a fresh video on Saturday. Do subscribe if it means it'll make it easier for you to get there. But in the meantime, let's start off this click hole with something random. Ooh, looks like we're starting with a very meaty Wikipedia article for once. That's very exciting. This is about William Anser cesaracu a prominent 18th century Fante man, best known for his wrongful enslavement. Was any enslavement not wrongful? I just find this this written questionably. Um. Anyway, wrongful enslavement, whatever that means, in the West Indies and diplomatic mission to England. He was both prominent among the Fante people and influential among Europeans concerned with the transatlantic slave trade. Born around 1736 in modern day Ghana, which was the then largest slave trading port, his father was the head of the government, and chief caboxir, don't know this word, one of the local officials responsible for supplying African slaves to European traders. God, how did he sleep at night? Damn. Anyway, uh, he was an important ally for anyone living or trading in the city, no kidding. So his family was of interest to many European polities competing for access to the trade, how nefarious. Okay, so his brother got sent to France and so then Ansar got sent to England to gain an education, curry favor with the English and serve as his eyes and ears in Europe. However, the ship captain entrusted with his transport sold him into slavery in Barbados instead Oh my god, talk about a change of destiny right there. Years later, a free Fante trader discovered Ansa in Barbados and quickly alerted John Corrente of his son's fate. Corrente petitioned the British to free Ansa, and the Royal African Company liberated him and transported him to England. In England, he was received as a prince and gained the respect of London's high society. Most notably, he watched a live performance of *Orunoko* and much to the audience's surprise, fled the theater in tears because the play depicted a wrongly enslaved African prince who likely reminded Ansa much of himself. Jeez, this is insane. So in the town, the Europeans were largely respected, but the power undeniably rested in the hands of the African cabosiers. So Corrente chooses to send him to England, with Captain David Bruce Creighton aboard the Lady Carolina. However, said captain betrayed his trust and sold him into slavery, so it played to his favour that he was well known back at home and so he was recognised by a trader who was doing business in Barbados and fought for his freedom. That is so fortuitous. That is very lucky. Meanwhile, back at home, English trade suffered there because Corrente blamed England for his son's death, but he wasn't dead. So they were very quick to return him home and transported him back to England where he was received as a prince. Sorry about that, bud. Sorry. Sorry we've accidentally forced an ally's son into slavery. So he was received in England in 1748 as a royal African. Hold on, so how long was he enslaved then? When did he go? God, he didn't live very long. So he was born around 1736, and it doesn't say when he went. He was only 12 when he was found and brought back to England, so he was a child. Anyway, he returns home two years later in 1750, so he's 14 by, by then. It's weird that they don't write about him like he's... Wait, am I doing math wrong? No, he's 14. 1736, 1750, he's 14. I can math. Yes, I can math. When he left England, he also left the fairy tale life of European prince. In Anamabo, the elite certainly had many privileges, but the extravagance found in Europe was simply not present. Oh, he got too used to a bunch of luxuries. <laughs> so after only a year back in Africa, he began work at Cape Coast Castle, which was the seat of British power. Oh my god, he wow. So he worked to play both the British and French off each other, so he forced them to offer competitive trade offers and regular tributes to remain in good standing. Smart kid. He personally accepted lavish gifts of whiskey from the British that were meant for the Greater Afonte people. Whoopsies. Oh, and in 1761, so he's what, 25, he became infuriated that the governor of Cape Coast Castle paid him in watered down whiskey. They got in a physical fight, and he got banned from the castle. The Governor went on to claim that he was quote, not a person of consequence. Oh, because he wasn't John Quarante's heir, even though he was his son. Alright, so he lost favour with the British and spent the rest of his life in Animobeau. Records exist of him acting as a slave trader during this time but his activity is relatively unknown. He passed away in relative anonymity, at least from the European perspective. Ansa serves as an important precursor to the mainstream 18th century abolitionist movement in Britain. His time in England as the Royal African set precedence that SOME Africans were above slavery and comparable to British nobility. In Ansar's memoirs, the author wrote, "'Good sense is the companion of all complexions,' and thereby suggested an inherent equality among those of various races." By establishing this, Ansar's presence in England contradicted the principle of race-based slavery. Instead, justifications for slavery then rested on the alleged crimes committed by slaves that had led to their enslavement. Ansar himself, as a man economically and politically invested in the slave trade, did not challenge the morality of the slave trade, but his very existence in London subverted the idea Africans could be enslaved for no reason. Weird. Weird story. Very weird. You know what? I'm always in need of a vacation, especially in 2020. Let's go to Barbados, baby. Yeah. Did you know, side note before we go through this page, that They have a um, long-term work from home visa. Check it out. You can live there for like a year as long as you can prove you have income coming in from elsewhere and that it's above a certain threshold and threshold's pretty low. But they give you basically a visa to just live there. It's pretty great. Been very tempted. Okay. Caribbean island. It is outside the hurricane belt. You get all the glory of the Caribbean without the hurricane belt. That is no small thing. Bridgetown is its capital and largest city. It's been inhabited by Kalinago people since the 13th century, prior to that by other Amerindians. Late 15th century Spanish navigators came, of course they did. The Portuguese Empire claimed the island for a short while but abandoned it, with their only remnants being an introduction of wild boars for a good supply of meat whenever the island was visited. And to replenish their supply of fresh water. Then the English came in and it became a wealthy sugar colony and the English centre of the African slave trade. In 1966, Barbados became an independent state and Commonwealth realm with Elizabeth II as its queen, but the country is set to remove her as its head of state and become a republic by 30th of November 2021. You heard it here first. Probably. Possibly. I don't know. Has a population of just over a quarter million people. You know, that's actually less than I thought. I mean, I know it's an island, but I don't know, the name Barbados is from either the Portuguese term Os Barbudos or the Spanish equivalent Los Barbudos, both meaning the bearded ones. It is unclear whether bearded refers to the long hanging roots of the bearded fig tree, don't see long hanging roots in this picture but we'll go with it, or the allegedly bearded caribs who once inhabited the island, or, more fancifully, to a visual impression of a beard formed by the sea foam that sprays over the outlying reefs. Oh that is very very fanciful. The original name for Barbados in the pre-Columbian era was Ichiruganaim, with possible translations including red land with white teeth, or redstone island with teeth outside. Or simply teeth. Cool. Colloquially, Barbadians refer to their home island as Bim. Bim. I like that. That's affectionate. Hell yes. This is the picture I came here for, let us all take a moment to enjoy this imagery. Even if you're not a beach person, I'm sure you can take some solace in this white sand and this crystal blue water. Damn, maybe it is time to move to Barbados. English is the official language. There you go, even easier. Oh, look at the parliament building. Oh my God, it's. I love that it's kind of European, but there are palm trees and shit. <laughs> that is, that's, that's fantastic. The palm tree with this clock tower, brilliant. I love how you've got these sort of Caribbean shutters as well on the windows that's so awesome on foreign relations it follows a policy of non-alignment and seeks cooperative relations with all friendly states that's good i like that i'm down with this barbadian folk traditions include the landship movement which is a satirical informal organization based on the british navy tea meetings took bands and numerous traditional songs and dances (laughs) what they mimic the British Navy dressed in naval uniforms while marching and performing to the music of the Took Band. Interesting. There was something I saw here that I wanted to click on because it just was so random. We're just gonna click on it, we're not gonna read the section. Irish people in Barbados. There is a main article, I want to know why. Irish immigration to Barbados. It dates back to the 1620s when the Irish began arriving on the island. They were mostly emigrants, indentures, and merchants. Though an unknown number of political and convict transportees. Currently, Barbadian descendants of the Irish are called redlegs, <laughs> or more derogatively, ecky-beckys. <laughs> this community has been endogamous, and now numbers only about 400 people. Isn't that they all marry within the same, yeah, same ethnic group. Most of them live in poverty and are prey to infections and diseases. Oh no, yikes. They have poor diet and lack of dental care, high rates of diabetes, school absentee Oh no oh no, I was having a laugh. Oh dear, this is sad. Today red legs are characterized by anomalies and difficulties to survive on the island. That's that's unfortunate. Let's go to redlegs. Term used to refer refer to poor whites that live or at one time lived on Barbados, St. Vincent, Grenada, and a few other Caribbean islands. Their forebears came from Ireland, Scotland, and the west of England. (laughs) The name is naturally derived from the effects of the tropical sun on fair-skinned legs. What a surprise. In addition to redlegs, the term underwent extensive progression in Barbados, and the following terms were also used, red shanks, poor whites, poor backer, backer johnny, ecky becky, poor backward johnny, poor whites from below the hill, ed white mice, becky neck, oh baked neck, that's what it is. Historically everything besides poor whites was used as derogatory insults. Most of their ancestors were forcibly transported by Cromwell consequent to his conquest of Ireland. Small groups of German and Portuguese were also imported as plantation labourers. So indentured servants were becoming less and less common, because African slaves were trained in all necessary trades, so there was no demand for paid white labour. So Most of them tried to emigrate to other British colonies whenever they could, which reduced them to an even smaller minority, and the ones that chose to stay eked out, at best, a subsistence living. Let's find out about Edmund Spencer, English poet best known for an epic poem and fantastical allegory celebrating the Tudor dynasty. He is recognised as one of the premier craftsmen of nascent modern English verse and is often considered one of the greatest poets in the English language. Oh he's buried at Westminster Abbey, that is a big deal. Okay, he was born in East Smithfield in London around 1552. I'm not really sure who his parents were. He was educated. He went to Ireland in service of a lord deputy. It looks like he acquired some estates. God, he did quite well. The ruins of his second property are still visible today. Short distance away grew a tree, locally known as Spencer's Oak, until it was destroyed in a lightning strike in the 60s. Oh, that's sad. These names are badass, honestly. He names if His first wife is called Maccabius? Maccabius? Child? they have two children sylvanus and catherine but then he marries another woman elizabeth boyle and they have a son called peregrine honestly they were they were having fun with the names only an edmund and elizabeth rocked the boat by naming their kid peregrine looks like he starved to death at the age of 46. so basically he was living in ireland at the time that the irish started to really hate the english especially because he wrote a pamphlet titled view of the present state of ireland in which he argued that Ireland would never be totally pacified by the English until its indigenous language and customs had been destroyed, if necessary by violence. Yeah, that's why they kicked him out. The Irish forces drove him from his home, his castle was burned, and then he went back to London, where he died. Ooh, that is bleak. Yeah, he pressed for a scorched earth policy in Ireland. Not always a good idea. In fact, is it ever a good idea? I would argue it's not. Not wise. Who else is in Poet's Corner, I wonder? which is a section of the south transept of Westminster Abbey, because there are many poets, playwrights, and writers buried there. Oh, the first one's Geoffrey Chaucer. If everybody's read Canterbury Tales, that's Chaucer. The Miller's Tale is (laughs) probably my favorite Chaucer. If you haven't read The Miller's Tale, it's worth it. It's very worth it. And here are the burials. Let's see who's here. Charles Dickens is there. He stipulated there would be no grand funeral ceremony. So he was given a secret early morning funeral in the Abbey. Handel is buried there. I didn't know that. God, everybody's buried there. Tennyson had a large public funeral there in October uh, 1892. Let's see, these people have memorials. Jane Austen has a memorial there. Charlotte, Brontë, the Bronte sisters. I think theirs is in a group. Lord Byron, Lewis Carroll of Alice in Wonderland fame. George Eliot, what was her real name again? Marianne Evans, yes. George Eliot is a woman. T.S. Eliot is there. Edward Lear. Oh, I loved Edward Lear's illustrations. Edward Lear, his illustrations were really nice. Look at that, that's stunning. Masada on the Dead Sea, 1858. Epic, did he travel a lot? I didn't know that. Okay, well, let's start at the beginning. I'm getting too excited. See, so an English artist, illustrator, musician, author, and poet? He's now known mostly for his literary nonsense in poetry and prose, especially his limericks, a form he popularized. So he principally worked as a a draftsman, employed to illustrate birds and animals. Um, He illustrated poems as an author. He wrote nonsense and he composed and published 12 musical settings of Tennyson's poetry. He was born into a middle-class family in North London, the penultimate of 21 children and youngest to survive. Wow. So he was raised by his eldest sister, who was 21 years older than him. Guys, birth control. Really, jeez. How do you give birth 21 times? Oh, he had lifelong health afflictions, suffered frequent epileptic seizures, bronchitis, asthma, and during later life, partial blindness. He had lifelong guilt and shame for his epileptic condition, poor bastard. When he was seven years old, he began to show signs of depression. And so an artist is born. So yeah, he traveled a lot, visited Greece and Egypt, he toured India, and looks like he spent some time in Italy as well. Gorgeous, gorgeous work. Oh shit, he was probably in the closet. His most fervent and painful relationship was with Franklin Lushington. He met the young barrister in Malta and then toured southern Greece with him, developed an infatuation for him that Lushington did not wholly reciprocate, though they remained friends for almost 40 years. To Leah's death, the disparity of their feelings constantly tormented Lear. His attempts at male companionship were not always successful. The very intensity of Lear's affections may have doomed these relationships. Poor man. All he wanted was to draw birds and have friends. The closest he came to marriage was two proposals, both to the same woman, 46 years his junior, to not accepted. Oh, and he had a cat named Foss. Let's go check out Foss, his cat. Oh, <laughs> that's so cute. <laughs> Foss! You can tell this is drawn by a sweet man, I don't know, I find him really sweet. Foss, formerly named Ada Foss, was the pet cat of Edward Lear, a stumpy, tailed, portly and unattractive tabby cat. He was a favourite of Lear's and played an important role as a companion in the poet's lonely later years. He gave him a funeral when he died, including an epigraphed headstone, is said to have been more elaborate than his own. Bless! Oh my god. Oh, he drew himself and his cat in a letter to somebody. Oh my god, that's so cute. Oh, he did have a stumpy tail. (laughs) That's so precious. So he was adopted while he was a kitten. His full name was the Greek word Aderphos, a variant of Adelphos, which means brother, but he was generally known by Foss, or particularly by Lear as Old Foss. He was a tabby cat described as unattractive. His tail was cut short by Lear's servants to try to prevent him from wandering. What? Oh, I thought he was just, oh, did Lear approve of that? I don't know that I approve of that. No photographs survived of the cat as he jumped out of Lear's arms on the only occasion when one was to be taken. That is so sad. He jumped out, oh. You literally have one, one shot in your life to get this picture and it's, it's gone. That's it, it's gone. He was mentioned so often in Leah's letters to others that he was said to have been almost as famous as Lear at the time. He would roll on his manuscripts to help dry the ink. Oh my god, and when Lear was planning his relocation to elsewhere, he had his architect design the new villa as the same floor plan as his previous home to avoid confusing his cat. Oh my god, he really cared about him. Despite this, on the first day in the villa, Foss climbed into one of its chimneys. Well, you tried. Oh, yeah, so one of Lear's famous poems is The Owl and the Pussycat, um, but the cat has a full tail, so it's probably not Foss. But Foss is mentioned also in another poem called How Pleasant to Know Mr. Lear. And the stanza says, He has many friends, laymen and clerical. Old Foss is the name of his cat. His body is perfectly spherical. He weareth a runcible hat. His body <laughs> is perfectly spherical. What a unit. I must know, what is runcible? A runcible hat? Runcible. A utensil that is a combination of a fork and spoon. What? No, it, no, at the time it didn't mean anything. It was just a nonsense word. But now, it means a utensil. <laughs> well, there you go. I love the way he draws both himself and his cat. As round, Thos was a key companion. He died at Leah's villa in San Remo in 1887, just two months before Leah died. That's almost like one of those companionship deaths, when two people can't live without each other and they just slowly die. Foss has been reported as being 14, 16, or 17 years old at the time of his death, though Lear was convinced he was much older and had the age of 31 engraved on his headstone. Foss's funeral had greater pomp and ceremony than Lear's own, which was poorly attended. That is just such a tragic life. This man was so sad and so lonely, all he wanted was a friend, him the time of day and the cat did it the cat wins why was the cat described as unattractive though what just because he had a short tail that's very judgmental 1887 animal deaths were there more notable animal deaths at that time racehorse deaths what animal births okay let's check it out (laughs) just racehorses only the dog Whoa! Oh my God! Has he been taxidermied? Who's this? Oni was a terry mix adopted as the first unofficial postal mascot by the Albany, New York Post Office about 1888. He traveled throughout the 48 contiguous states and voyaged around the world, traveling over 140,000 miles in his lifetime. Oh my God! They taxidermied him. Oh no! I don't know. Don't know that that was a great job. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. That's a questionable <laughs> taxidermy. I mean, it's not bad, but. Something unsettling. Don't know. So he belonged to a clerk at the post office who often brought him to work. He loved the smell of the mailbags and would sleep on them. Not the clerk, the dog, I mean. The clerk quit but knew that the dog was happier there, so he just left him. As his trips grew longer, the postal clerks became concerned that the dog should be identified, and if necessary, turned to them, so they got him a dog collar with a metal tag that read, Oni, Post Office, Albany, New York. And then to that collar, the post offices that had him as a visitor added individual dog tags. Oh, that's what they all are. So all of these are tags from post offices he'd been to. He is very cute. There he is while living. <laughs> and there he is, taxidermied. <laughs> it's the eyes. I think it's the eyes and that the ears aren't quite. and the paws get tiny. Why do paws get tiny when they do the taxidermy? I don't know, but his paws are definitely more meaty here. Well, they did their best. One of his more, more famous trips was to Montreal. There, the postmaster kept him in a kennel. <gasps> a demand was sent to Albany for the payment for the $2.50 that was incurred in feeding him. What a dick! The emperor of Japan awarded the dog two passports and several medals bearing the Japanese coat of arms. He traveled for four months throughout Asia and across Europe, North Africa, and the Middle East. His triumphant return to American shores was covered by newspapers nationwide. As Oni aged, post office management came to believe that his traveling days were over. So a mail clerk of St. Louis agreed to take him in and the influential Chicago manager of the railway mail service, using insulting language to refer to the mongrel cur, asked his employees to not allow him ride on future mail trains. The exact details of the incident which led to Oni's death are unclear. Oh dear, this is not good. Somebody did not like him for some reason. Apparently he had been ill and become aggressive. After allegedly attacking a postal clerk, he was shot and killed. By the orders of the local postmaster, Chicago Tribune termed it an execution. Damn right it was. Should have just let him retire quietly. A contemporary account suggests that a postal clerk in Toledo chained Oni to a post in the corner of a basement at a post office in Toledo, which was not his normal treatment. Yeah, of course Oni was not used to that treatment, and he probably was upset and didn't know what was happening to him. Poor dog. Oni's death made public that a gap existed between the workplace attitudes of US postal clerks and their management. Wow, it took a dog. So you can now see Oni at the Smithsonian. That's where he questionably rests in this shell of himself. There's also Bob the Railway Dog. Ooh, hello, Bob. Traveled the South Australian Railway System. Let's go to Sergeant Stubby. Oh, <laughs> bless him. <laughs> he is very stubby indeed. Okay, Sergeant Stubby was a dog and the official mascot of the 102nd Infantry Regiment, United States, and was assigned to the 26th Yankee Division in World War One. He served for 18 months and participated in 17 battles on the Western Front. He saved his regiment from surprise mustard gas attacks, found and comforted the wounded, and allegedly once caught a German soldier by the seat of his pants, holding him there until American soldiers found him. I don't think a dog of this size is capable of that, but it's a great story, let's believe it. Stubby has been called the most decorated war dog of World War I, and the only dog to be nominated for rank and then promoted to sergeant through combat. Oh, he's also in the Smithsonian. God, did they just have a dead dog section? Jeez. Okay, so he was a Boston Terrier. He was found wandering the grounds of the Yale University campus while members of the 102nd infantry were training. He hung around as the men drilled and one soldier in particular developed a fondness for him. When it came time for the outfit to ship out, Conroy hid Stubby on board the troop ship and he hid Stubby under his overcoat without detection. Wow, that is impressive. Upon discovery by Conroy's commanding officer, Stubby saluted him as he had been trained trained two in camp and the commanding officer allowed the dog to stay on board. (laughs) Okay, so he entered combat on February 5th, 1918 at Chemin de Dame, north of Soissons and was under constant fire, day and night for over a month. During a raid he was wounded in the foreleg by a hand grenade, he was sent to the rear for convalescence, and as he had done on the front improved morale. When he recovered he returned to the trenches, he was also injured by mustard gas, when he recovered he returned with a specially designed gas mask to protect him. Thus, learning to warn his unit of poison gas attacks, locate wounded soldiers in no man's land, and since he could hear the whine of incoming artillery shells before humans, he became very adept at alerting his unit when to duck for cover. Wow, that's extraordinary. He was injured injured again in the chest and leg by a grenade. He ultimately had two wound stripes. At the end of the war, Conroy smuggled Stubby home. That is a loyal soldier and loyal dog. And he died in his sleep. After his death, he was preserved with his skin mounted on a plaster cast. So they fucking skinned the dog and put it on a- oh god, I don't know. Why did they do that? Just bury him. Bury him. Give him an honorable burial and let him, you know, take part in the cycle of life. That's all I can say. There he is, Sergeant Stubby, bless, this woman also looks taxidermied. Something's gone wrong with her face there. Well, I think Surgeon Stubby is a happy note to end on. We started this clickhole with William Answer Cesar Koo, who was a boy essentially who was unintentionally sold into slavery. And after that, we decided rapidly to take a vacation and went to Barbados, where we enjoyed lovely pictures of a beach. And then we branched off to the Irish Red Legs and their situation, and somehow we ended up on some poets like Edmund Spencer and Edward Lear. And we considered considered the charms of their pets, especially Foss, Edward Lear's cat, who served him honourably. Then somehow we ended up on Oni, the national post office dog, I suppose, and then we finished off with beloved Sergeant Stubby, another honourable, loyal canine. So if you enjoyed this click haul, please like, comment, share and subscribe, stay tuned for another video on Saturday. Thanks for watching and listening, appreciate you, and I'll see you in the next one, bye!